0: Uh, but the last three songs are going to be sung at my funeral. I don't know what you're trying to say today, Clay. I'm <laughs> uh, picking those songs. Uh, but uh, what a powerful, powerful reminder of the gospel. Powerful reminder of the foundation that we have as the church, as we do display the gospel in the world, um, that Jesus paid it all. And uh, what more can he say to us? And what He has already said in His Word. And that's why we look at His Word together today. Um, Before we do that, I would say as you came in, you uh, received a prayer guide for our uh, missionaries that are in Ica, Peru. Uh, We have three college students that are there. They're working with campus ministry uh, through crew there in Ica, Peru. Uh, getting campus ministry started there. They're working with one of our churches that's a part of a church planning movement there. Uh, And this is just a guide throughout the summer to help you pray for them. It's not really anything specific they're doing every day. It's just a reminder every day to pray for them uh, in a specific way. So get one of these before you leave today. Put it on your refrigerator or you can download it off of our uh, Facebook page so that you have have it every day to pray for them. I have so many college students around the world with the gospel this summer, and we want to be mindful to pray for them every day. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to read verses 21 and 22 to begin our time together. Hear the word of Christ. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father in law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Oh God, I pray today that we would see more clearly through this ancient text, this story that seems so far, far away. God, it would come alive here today in these moments so that we would see more clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we we gather here not just to go through the motions, not just to feel a certain way about ourselves or about God. We, We gather here today to be changed, to be more faithful, more loyal to the risen ark of God named Jesus. God, help us to see clearly what He has done for us on the cross and resurrection. Help us to cling to His promise even more faithfully. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was a teal-colored, greenish-looking, NIV, slimline Bible. And it was one of the first that was ever made. It was made when I was a teenager. Uh, And it was just like my cool, hip youth pastor's Bible, and I wanted one just like it. The guy who sang just like Michael W. Smith in worship on a Sunday morning, some of you don't even know who that is, um, took me to my first D.C. Talk concert, and I wanted to be just like him. Uh, And so my grandmother bought me a Bible just like his. We actually studied Proverbs together uh, when I was in middle school, and I used this Bible, and it became a very special Bible to me. Uh, And at some point, I I really don't know when I began this nightly sort of ritual in my life as a teenager. I would read my Bible before bed, and then I would take that Bible, and I would put it under my pillow. Uh, And as a lot of uh, young adults, teenagers—you're living in the midst of anxiety and fear and worry and stress—and and, and I went through a time in my life where I doubted my salvation, and so I would read my Bible and put that Bible under my pillow, and I would repeat until I fell asleep the sinner's prayer, which is, I admit that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know that you died for my sins, and I'm committing my life to you. And I would say that over and over until I fell asleep. That sort of gives you a picture into my life as a teenager. And and that sort of just became this ritualistic thing that I did every night. And I'll never forget when I lost that Bible. I I was at a youth conference in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Dawson McAllister, if you know who that is, I was there and I left my Bible in the hotel under the pillow because what I had done the night before is read it, put it under the pillow and went through this little silly ritual and I just left the Bible there and I was devastated when I got home and realized I don't have my Bible and I couldn't even sleep that night. And I got my mom to call the hotel and I begged her, can we go get this Bible? Because I have no idea how I'm gonna live as a Christian now without this Bible. And I remember the angst in my, my soul. How am I going to live uh, without this Bible? And the answer, some of you are saying, well, you should actually just get another Bible and start reading it instead of just putting it under your pillow. There's all kinds of ways that you should, you should deal uh, with this worry, with this stress, how you live the Christian life. And I eventually got another Bible and there was nothing magical to it. And I kept my salvation throughout high school. Had had more to do with the gospel, as you know, than any of that. But, but a lot of us do that with our Christianity in so many different ways. Not just our Bibles or the prayers that we repeat. We do that with our Christianity in general. Christianity becomes like a rabbit's foot to us. Sort of a good luck charm. Jesus becomes this, uh, if you've ever seen them, those magical eight balls where you ask it a question and you shake it until you get the answer you want. And, and for many of us, that's, that's Jesus. It, it, it's just sort of this mysterious, superstitious relic. Our Christianity becomes a good luck charm to us. And, and when we get to 1 Samuel 4, that is what God is showing us about Israel. God himself has become an ancient relic to them. And God himself is being used for their own benefit. And here in chapter 4, God proves he is not a good luck charm. God proves he is not this superstitious, magical religion that you can just tack on to your life. He is not to be used. He is to be trusted. He is to be believed in. He is to be followed. And we see that beginning in chapter 1. Notice the first part of the chapter that we're looking at today, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to Israel. Now remember, Israel has been in the promised land for 200 years. They have left Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness. They have entered the promised land. They are defeating their enemies and they have been there for 200 years. And remember the book of Judges, this cycle of sin and judgment that happens throughout that book where Israel disobeys God They begin to do what is right in their own eyes. God punishes them. He allows their enemies, the Philistines and others, to overtake them. And then these superhero, avenger-like heroes in the book of Judges rise up. Men like Samson rise up and they deliver Israel from their enemies. And that cycle just continues over and over throughout the book of Judges. And when we get to 1 Samuel, God says, I've had enough with it. I'm I'm going to kick the priest out of the building. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to leave you for a little while. I'm going to punish you in that way. And this word of judgment comes through this little prophet boy, Samuel. Remember Hannah, his mother, who was barren. She gives birth to this child who becomes the prophet in Israel. And at this time, he is living in the house of God in Shiloh. And he is to be a picture of what a good priest is going to be. One who believes the word, trusts the word, and lives in the presence of God. Unlike Eli, who is a corrupt priest with his sons, he's a good priest. And he gives us a picture of that. And this word is moving throughout Israel. But notice what Israel decides to do as the text continues. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now that's a bad idea. When God says, I'm going to remove my presence from you, hey, let's go to war. That's not a good idea. They are presumptuous here. And they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek, and the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, notice Israel was defeated before the Philistines. And that's kind of unusual that they are used to winning. All we do is win. And here they, 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 are, they have been defeated. And notice who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. 4,000, not just men in general, but warriors, soldiers have been destroyed on the battlefield. And, and here we have a picture of their weakness. In the book of Joshua, the book begins with God telling Joshua and the people of Israel, I want you to be strong and I want you to be courageous. I'm giving you this land. I'm promising it to you. And as long as you hear my word and you obey my word and you trust me, I'm going to be with you. But when you fail to hear my word and you fail to trust me, I'm not going to be with you, and you're going to be defeated. And that's exactly what has happened here. Their weakness with their sword is displaying the weakness of their faith. They have forgotten the word of God and so God has left them to their own devices and here they are defeated, verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, they've come back from war, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today? Now That's a stupid question. There are stupid questions and that's one. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Because he said he would do that. But notice how how they're assuming the grace of God. And he says, okay, it must not... The the elders get together and they say, it can't be because of sin. It can't be because of anything we're doing. It can't be because we're not powerful enough. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. Let's go back to Shiloh, the city of worship. Let's go into the house of the Lord and let's bring the Ark of the Covenant out. Notice that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Why have we been defeated? It can't be because of our disobedience. It must be because we're not close enough to the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant was this two by three box box. And it it rested behind the veil in the Holy of Holies uh, that, that represented where the presence of God was. And inside this box was the Ten Commandments, which reminded them of God's law to them, which reminded them of God's word. Also in this box was manna, which reminded them of God's presence with them, provision with them in the wilderness, on top of this box were these angelic beings that, that were shaped. And, and on top of this box, when, when the offering, the, the atonement was made, blood was sprinkled on top of this box to remind them the law is in the box. You violated the law, even though God provided manna for you, you've disobeyed Him, but because of this blood, you are forgiven of that, and God is with you. And so the Ark of the Covenant reminded them of God's presence with them. And they're thinking, if we can just get this box out of the tent, and we could just get this box here with us, we wouldn't be defeated. We would be able to win in battle. Now think about the way they're thinking about God. First of all, they're questioning obvious consequences for their sins. They are so blind to their sin they don't even see it. And, and we do the same thing in our life. We're warned not to live a certain way, but that's the way we really want to live, and so we do it anyway. And then we're miserable. And we're, why am I miserable? Hey, if you make momentary, temporary decisions for pleasure over and over and over again, you're going to be miserable. And then we're miserable and we say, why? How did this happen? If you fail to love others, you are going to be selfish. You're going to be alone. You're going to alienate others in your life. And then we're alone and we've alienated others and we go, how did this happen? And we question the obvious consequence for our sin over and over in our life. And we're constantly walking around, hey, why, did, why is this going on? And the answer is obvious. It's because we don't hear and heed the word of God and we don't live according to the gospel. And, and, and it should be no mystery why we are miserable. It should be no mystery why we don't feel the presence and power of God with us. But they think it's because the ark isn't close enough. And they say, okay, let's go get it. Let's bring it close. And they're kind of, when I was with my, I would go fishing with my granddad. We'd fish all day and we weren't catching anything. And he would always had this phrase, you're not holding your mouth right. <laughs> had nothing to do with the fish. Had nothing to do with what I was doing. It was just this thing he would say. It's kind of what the Israelites are doing here. Let's try something else. Let's try holding our mouth right. Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And notice verse 4. They send for it in Shiloh, this city where worship was held. And they brought the Ark out. And notice the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. This this box that represents His presence. that, That represents His provision. That represents His forgiveness. And here they are treating it like a rabbit's foot. If we can just get closer to it, we can just bring it out. It's kind of like you you play baseball with the the cross around your neck. You're going to have good luck. That's the way they're thinking about it. It's kind of like your your wedding ring. Your your wedding ring reminds you of your commitment to your spouse. But it doesn't keep you committed. It's just a symbol of those things. And they bring out the symbol thinking it's it's going to give them victory in battle. It would be like saying, I'm really struggling with sin. I'm really struggling with church attendance. Let me get out that baptismal certificate that I got when I was six, and it's really going to help me. It's not going to help. And the Ark of the Covenant isn't going to help them here. And notice the text continues. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Now that is to signal something. Remember how corrupt these priests are? They are having immoral relations in the doorway of the temple. They are stealing meat sacrificed on the altar. And yet they're still here in this place that symbolizes the presence of the God of God, and they're not being lit up. It, it, it's a sign God's not there anymore. <laughs> Because they would not be able to live in this place if God's presence was still there. And notice verse 5. As soon as the ark of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now, what does that remind you of? They're pulling out all the stops. The ark of the covenant. Hey, y'all. Remember when we entered the promised land and we brought the ark out and the waters of the Jordan just parted for us and we walked across? Go get that ark. Go get that box because that's the problem. We need the box. Hey, and do you remember the story of Jericho when we just marched around the city? And then what did we do? We all got together and we shouted and the walls came down. Let's shout out all the stops, all of the little gimmicks. Let's pull it all out and then we can have victory. Let's get the box and one, two, three, let's all shout and all the Philistines are going to fall dead. That's not what happened because they're treating God like a rabbit's foot. They're treating Yahweh like a magic eight ball and it doesn't work. And it's the same way some of us are treating God today. You're thinking, if I could just pray that prayer the right way, even go back to King James, thee, thou, God's going to listen to me. me. He's going to take this sickness away. If I just say it the right way, if I could just pray like somebody really spiritual, God's going to answer my prayer. If Clay would just pick the right music on Sunday, that's going to cause me to be... Closer to God. That's going to cause me to really feel spiritual. And and we treat God like this superstitious gimmick in our life. If I could just quote the verse, if I could just write this verse over my bank account, I I would have more money. If I can just memorize the verse and repeat it over and over, then it's going to make me a better husband. It's going to make my marriage easier somehow mysteriously. And all of those things lack faith in a person. It's a gimmick we go through. It's this perfunctory, mechanical thing that we think is going to superstitiously bless our life. And many of us have come to Jesus and said, if I just repeat this prayer, then you have to save me. And that's the problem. If I just say the words right, God has to do something. And who's in control of that kind of religion? Who's in control in that kind of spirituality? If I do the right thing and I say it the right way and I go through the right motions, then God has to do something. You're in control. And God is proving here He's in control. He has promised this will happen. And all we see in this chapter is a work of his providence, is a work of his might, even the destruction of Israel. And notice verse 6, when the Philistines they heard this noise of the shouting, and they said, "What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean?" You know, the first time we went to battle, they were kind of mousy. And now, they're rallying the troops. They've had a pep rally. And we've heard of their pep rallies. When they have this kind of thing, they destroy their enemies. We're about to be destroyed. They've heard of the Exodus. They've heard of Israel entering the promised land, wiping out the Canaanites before them. They've heard of destruction before. They've heard of the way they shout and the Lord provides for them. And notice, they hear something else. Rumor spreads back to the Philistines. They learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp. And they're like, oh no. They brought the box out. They put out all the stops. We are in trouble. Game over. Verse 7, The Philistines were afraid for they said, A God has come into the camp. Notice how they refer to the ark. It is a God in and of itself. And notice they said, Woe to us, which is damned or cursed to us. Game over. We are about to be destroyed for nothing like this has happened before. The, The ark and the shouting. And we will be destroyed. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They're even referring to the Israelites as these mighty gods empowered by these gimmicks. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, who struck the Egyptians down? And who destroyed the Egyptians in the wilderness? Not gods, Yahweh. And He did it for these people who trusted Him who he had promised. But here they see themselves up up against these magical gods who are going to wipe them out. And notice, they fear the Lord more than the Israelites. They fear what's going to happen to them. They are taking this more seriously than the Israelites. Have you ever been in a situation like that as a Christian? Where your unbelieving friends are more enamored with the gospel than you are? Maybe you're, you're worried, you're anxious, you're frustrated, you're angry. And they look at you and thought, man, don't you believe that your sins are forgiven? Don't you believe in a man raised from the dead? And don't you believe you're going to heaven when you die? Why are you so frivolous? Why are you, why are you that way? And here their enemies fear the Lord more than they do. And notice they say, take courage and be men. Now, that phrase is used of Israel throughout the story. Take courage and be men. Go fight. The Lord is with you. And now they're using their terminology, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And we think something different is going to happen. They've got the box. They're shouting, but notice these words. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. Now the word slaughter there is used of the Egyptians when God destroys them at the Red Sea. The Israelites have been destroyed and slaughtered and crushed by the Philistines. And notice the number increases for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. They break out the gimmicks and even more die. The judgment is even more severe. God says, you're going to treat me that way? Imagine walking across a battlefield of 30,000 warriors destroyed. And God is saying, I will not be used. I'm not a gimmick. And notice even more, the ark of the covenant was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas, these corrupt priests, they died. There is this great slaughter, and now all that represents Israel has been taken from them. Now, when we read that at first glance, we begin to think Yahweh has been defeated. That's the way the Philistines would have thought. We defeated their gods, their gods, the, the ark, and, and, and the way that they go through their religion. We defeated their gods. They put on this religious display before us and it didn't work. We're stronger than their gods. And when you read the story, you think Yahweh has lost. But who promised this would happen? Throughout the whole story, God is saying, I'm still in control. I'm still king. I'm still telling the story. And God is the one who empowered the Philistines by depowering the Israelites. God is in control of this whole scene. And he's the one who said he would do it. And there's a warning here for Christians, fake Christians, artificial Christians, those who call themselves by Christians by name who aren't really Christians. There's a warning here. God is willing to suffer shame for his name to prove you are fake. And we see that all the time. God's telling a long story that is bigger than any fake Christian's life. And the person who's just artificial Sunday morning going through the motions, treating God like a gimmick, it will be displayed. There's no power in that. And God's okay with that. For people to look at you and go, you're a hypocrite. You're a fraud. You're God's okay with that. Because He's telling a bigger story, just like He is with Israel. And if you will not allow your sin to be exposed and repented of, He will allow your sin to shame you one day. It will come out and you will be proven a fraud just as Israel is proven a fraud here. And notice verse 12, a man of Benjamin. Now later we're going to hear about another Benjamite named Saul. He ran from the battle line and he came up to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. He, he has been devastated. The signs of defeat are all over him. And when he arrived in Shiloh, notice Eli was sitting in his seat by the road watching. He's in his Walmart scooter there outside the city. He's broken down. He's old. He couldn't go out to battle. He's at the edge of the city wondering what is going on? What is happening? And remember, he can't see. He, he doesn't know what's going on around him. But notice he hears the commotion, he hears this man running. And his heart trembles for the Ark of the Covenant because word had gotten to him that the box, the Ark of the Covenant, had been taken out of the temple. And that had been promised to him in judgment. God had said to Eli, I'm going to remove your lineage from the house. And I'm going to take my presence away from you. So the Ark of the Covenant has been removed. He is scared to death. He knows judgment is coming. And when the man came into the city and told the news, the whole city cried out. Again, they don't understand. Why would we be defeated? God is supposed to be with us. But notice verse 14. When Eli heard the sound of the cry, he said, what's the uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli, Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he couldn't see. He's completely blind. And the man said, Eli, I am he who has gone from the battle and I fled the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? Probably knowing what the answer is going to be. He brought the news and answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has been a great defeat among the people. And then what had been promised to him what had already been told to him, what he was probably fearing every day since Samuel first told him in the house of the Lord, your sons will die. Your family will be kicked out of the priesthood. Your sons, your two sons also, Hothni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. The enemies of God have it. We are powerless and we are being defeated. And it, notice this, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. And notice why he died. It's very important. Notice, for the man was old and heavy. Now that has nothing to do with his diet. That has everything to do with this was a man who allowed his sons to steal food from the altar of God. And he has grown fat and heavy on his own glory. He is a man who lived his life given over to his desires, what he wanted. He overlooked sin in the temple for his own glory. And now what has killed him? His own glory in the form of his heaviness, He is heavy with his own glory and it breaks his neck. After 40 years of ruling Israel, after 40 years of being the man, he was fake, he was plastic, he was living for himself. And here it is his glory that has crushed him. And that's the problem with treating Jesus like a magic eight ball. Just over and over Jesus, give me what I want. Jesus, give me what I want coming to Jesus for for your hopes, for your dreams, for your desires, the way you've looked at your life and you said, I want it this way. I want to go to this school. I want this spouse. I want this family. I want to live here. This is the way that I want it. And you go to Jesus and you shake Him and you say, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I want this. This is what I want. And the scary thing is, Jesus may give you everything you ask for and never give you Him. And it will be all of these things that you have raised up as idols that crush you. You become fat on your own glory. And it destroys you. And it's the problem with coming to Jesus and only asking for what you want. And only seeing life as your kingdom. But notice the story continues. And now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, she was pregnant and about to give birth And when she heard the news of the ark that it was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed down and gave birth. She went into labor right on the spot for pains came over her. This is severe. This is scary. Verse 20. And about the time of her death, this is killing her. The women attending her said, Do not be afraid for you have born a son. It's okay. There's something good here. The legacy of your husband, it will continue on. But notice she did not answer or pay attention. She said, no, this is hopeless. This is despair. And it's in contrast to Samuel. Samuel is a child of hope. And here she has a child of despair. This, Samuel marks the beginning of God about to do something great. This child marks the end of what God is doing in judging his people. Notice, he says, do not be afraid. And she didn't even pay attention. No, this is hopeless. Verse 21, she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed. It's what the word means. The glory is gone. The glory is no more. The glory of Israel is gone. And we would think, yeah, it's because the glory of the box has been captured. Notice, because the Ark of the Covenant has been captured and because of the father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the Ark has been captured. Now, if God is just a relic, if God is just a rabbit foot, then that is why the glory departed. Because the box is gone. But the real reason is, why is the box gone? Because God had left the building a long time ago. And this was a nation powerless against their enemies because they failed to trust the Lord. They had forsook God and He has forsaken them to their enemies. And Eli is a picture of Israel here. They lived for themselves. They they sought their own idols, the way they wanted things. And that is what has killed them. Their own glory has destroyed them. And now what what God is saying is you can have your own glory, but my glory can't coexist with yours. And it's gone. And they they have been defeated. And and, and the glory of God is just a captured piece of furniture at this point. God had left the building a long time ago. And, And this is what so many of us experience when we treat the gospel like this spiritual gimmick. We get to certain points in our life and we say there's no power in this. I keep just going through the motions, but He's not doing anything for me. And and it's because it's just a gimmick that we go through over and over to get what I want. We we use Jesus for our hopes and dreams. The the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus is just this subcontractor. You know, I, I map out my kingdom the way that I want it, but there's some things I can't do. So I have to subcontract those things. I can't die for my sin. I, I can't get to heaven. So I'll let Jesus do those things. But everything else, I'll just go through the motions and force him to do everything else for me. And we get to points in life where there is no power. That We're not experiencing the Spirit of God. And it's because the whole thing is a sham. The whole thing was was a gimmick, just like the ark. The, the, The reading of the Bible is God, just like the ark. Serving, loving others, attending church, worship, being involved in community. Those things begin to leave our lives. And it's because the glory of God had left the building a long time ago. And you were just going through the motions. It had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And you could write Ichabod over your life. The king has left the building, Jesus. And it's one thing we have to be careful of as a church. That this thing called Ashland isn't just a gimmick. Not just a gimmick. The warehouse church. They, they say and sing Jesus a certain way that's not like other people. And then over in time, if it's not really about Jesus, it's not really about the Word of God, it's not really about the Gospel, there'll come a day where we'll write Ichabod over this warehouse. And we, we still may be a warehouse full of people going through the motions, but the glory of God's not present. Do you know how scary that is? This has to be about Jesus. And that's why Paul in Corinthians says, we have seen the glory of God. And it's not in a box. It's not in a piece of furniture. It's not in a gimmick. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus, a person with a beard, eyelashes, a nose who literally walked on the earth and never sinned. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ with a crown of thorns on his head and blood running down, dying for your sins. That's what the glory of God is. The gospel and the cross isn't just some sort of good luck charm. It's not. The cross is a place where you write Ichabod over your glory. You know how you keep this from being a gimmick, superstitious relic? is you make it all about Jesus. The person of Jesus Christ. He's not a program. He's not a bullet point. He is a person. And He has given us His personal presence in the Spirit of God. And we live by it, by walking with Him in His Word, living out His story. His story becomes our story. We live out the glory of God as His church in the world together by clinging to Jesus. And at the cross we say, Here's my glory, Ichabod. Give me the glory of Christ. All I have, all my glory is sin. That's all I've got. I fall short of the glory of God with my glory. All my power, all my desires, all of my actions, my glory gives me hell. But his glory, perfection, righteousness, stapled to a cross. That's His glory. And He gives me eternity. It gives me righteousness. And I'm going to cling to His glory. And this king I need who saves me is a king that I trust, follow, submit, and serve. And He's not a king that can be used. We've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And just like in the story, the glory leaves Shiloh to be defeated. The glory of God has left heaven to be defeated for you. On the battlefield, sin and death decimated him. And and he screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just the same thing the Israelites screamed out. How could we be defeated? My God, my God, why would you? And that question makes sense because he's Jesus. But the answer is, he was forsaken so you would never have to be forsaken. Because at Golgotha, Jesus was named no glory. You will never hear Ichabod. You will never hear the glory has departed from your life. And that's a promise you can put under your pillow at night. Let's pray.